Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 3. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitalities to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself would, were suffering. Thank you, Fiona. Um, a few years back, after I'd spoken at church, Tony approached me and um, talked to me about the fact that I hadn't linked the talk to the passage from the previous week. Uh, he was right to do that, and I've been careful to do so ever since, uh, except today. Because when I look at this particular passage, I could see absolutely no connection with last week's verses. What has showing hospitality to strangers got to do with not allowing a bitter root to grow or with a mountain that can't be touched? And how do the very last words from last week's passage, our God is a consuming fire linked to what has just been read? Seems to me that you could take these three verses and drop them into the last chapter of any of the letters of the New Testament and they'd probably fit just fine. And I kind of like it that way. You know, the author of Hebrews has spent 12 chapters really carefully, methodically explaining the gospel to people of a, a Jewish heritage. Now it's time to let rip with a few one-liners. It's as though the author is saying, I've nearly finished this book and there's some stuff I really want to say, so I'm just going to let it out. I mentioned Tony's comment because it's an example of someone challenging me and causing me to change. That's a rare but an important event. And it's my prayer that this passage will do the same for us all today. Now, whenever I read this passage, it, it speaks to me of something that I think of as one of the weaknesses of the culture that I was born into. You can probably guess what I'm talking about. It's, it's hospitality. So when I first started preparing for today, I thought that's what I would really focus on. But as I read through the passage again, I saw something else. Interestingly, I personally think it's a weakness, a blind spot in our Bible-believing culture. It's something that we see and yet that we don't see, something that is hiding in plain sight as we read the Bible. It's my personal opinion that time and time again we read of we speak of and we even sing about angels without really noticing that they're there. I don't personally remember hearing a talk about angels, except the one I did an hour ago. And I've only very rarely heard them mentioned in conversation and actually often more likely to be mentioned by non-Christians and Christians. And I think that's a shame because these are glorious creatures with whom we all will be spending eternity. 
And the Bible is full of them. Yeah, and they're not just an Old Testament thing. In fact, they're mentioned almost twice as often as in the New Testament than in the Old. I have my own theory as to why Bible-believing Christians may be a little blind to this. Um, and my theory has two parts to it. I think it's because of the fairies and because of idolatry. Let's start with idolatry. Colossians 2 verse 18 reads like this. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Absolutely nothing should ever take the place of God. And as you likely know, there is some particularly bad history around angels. And I just wonder if we've so taken to heart the importance of not worshipping angels that we've neglected them altogether. And then there are the fairies and all sorts of other stories a bit like that. I find it fascinating that there are stories across the world that paint what I think of as distorted images, distorted pictures of what angels are. And I'm personally very careful to separate those stories from the truth and to call those stories fantasy. And I want to know that these things aren't true and that I don't personally believe them, but that this is the truth and I do believe it. And I just wonder that somewhere in there I've actually become uncomfortable talking or thinking about angels. Now, we certainly wouldn't be the first people to have an issue with angels. Um, many of you may be aware that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. There's a, a particular story um, in the Acts of the Apostles where Paul used that to great effect when he was on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And he looked around him and saw there was a group of Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and Pharisees who did. But what I've completely missed all these years in that story, and this is what I mean when I say that angels can hide in plain sight, is that the Sadducees also did not believe in angels. So, I guess to get himself out of trouble because he was being tried, Paul stirred up and provoked the Sadducees by telling them that he was on trial that day because of his hope in the resurrection. What I've missed is that the Pharisees picked up the red rag, if you like, to wave at the Sadducees, and they stirred it even further by saying this in Acts 23 verse 9. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? This isn't, there isn't time today properly to explore what angels are, but let's take a, a quick look. They're messengers who have seen the very, very face of God. 
They are enormously powerful creatures. They're individuals which suggest they have personality. Some of them in the Bible are given names. They, are, they have free will just as we have and just as we have, some of them have abused that. There are hints that they are creatures of great beauty. They're not necessarily beauty as we understand it. Matthew 28 verse 3 says this. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Angels appear in the the major stories of the New Testament. They're there at the beginning in the nativity and at the end at the resurrection. But they also are mentioned regularly in Jesus' teaching. One little example, did you notice angels in the story of the lost coin? If you move to the Acts of the Apostles, they spoke to Cornelius and very famously they led a prison break. Maybe listening to that, you think that angels are for the big events in history. You kind of dust them off at Christmas and put them in the crib because they were there at the birth, the safe of the world. But you don't see them as having any connection to personal life. In that case, you probably didn't listen carefully enough right at the beginning of the series in Hebrews. Because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, the writer says this, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? The term guardian angel is not found in the Bible. But there are verses that suggest that there are individual angels responsible for looking after each of us. What is clear, though, is that these utterly amazing creatures are deeply involved in our lives. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve us. Something a bit odd happened to me this morning. I woke up. And I looked at my alarm clock about 20 seconds before it was due to go off. And I realised I hadn't set it. And um, ordinarily I would have slept through, which meant I would have spared the uh, first service hearing a sermon. Um, Rekha has her set, so I'd have made this one, I'm sorry to say. But I just thought about that. Um, it, it could well have been my subconscious that caused me to do that. Most Christians, uh, uh, but, but it may have been something from God. Most Christians at that point would say, the Holy Spirit prompted me. I just wonder whether sometimes we use the word Holy Spirit when actually it's angels that are acting from what I read in the Bible. Now, it may be, it may be that angels are very gracious and they don't mind us ignoring them. But you know, all of us have days when we are fearful. That happened to Elisha's servant once. He was in a town surrounded by enemies, dreading what would happen in the following hours. It's found in 2 Kings 6 verse 17. 
I think particularly on those days when we are fearful, it would help if we could see that these amazing, powerful beings were all around us, protecting us. And that's what happened to Elisha's servant. Says this, he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around. I said that the um, writer of Hebrews let out was on their, what was on their heart and I responded to this passage by doing just that and speaking about angels. My, my apologies if you really like the preacher to keep to the text of the passage rather than to copy the behaviour of the author. But let's go back to the text and have a look at this verse. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. If there's one verse in the Bible that I would choose to illustrate the value of being a multicultural church and of living in a multicultural area, it's this one. Were it not for me having been exposed to other cultures over the years, I might rush past that verse without much thought. Now I think about it, and then I think about it again, and then again. I just want to make it very clear at this point, this is about hospitality to strangers. It's not about having your mates around or your family around for a meal. Now, I've been extraordinarily blessed by the hospitality that I've been shown over the years by strangers. I'll give a, a few examples. Some years back, we chose to go on holiday to a, a place that some of our neighbours had given us a real interest in, Bangladesh. Um, in so many ways, it was a, a remarkable experience. I'll share one memory. Um, we were there for Christmas. And I guess most people think of Christmas as the most important Christian festival. The most special Christmas of my life was given to me by a group of strangers, people that I met that day for the first time in a village in Salat in Bangladesh. It's a group of people that don't celebrate Christmas, probably have never celebrated it before in their lives in any form. But they took it upon themselves to give me and my family such a day that I choked up at the end of it. Uh, and believe me, I'm not somebody that chokes up. I still struggle to get my head around that. So I want to, uh, I want to give you a simpler example. Um, when I was in my 20s, I backpacked in Eastern Europe for a few weeks. I arrived in a town in Hungary with an address of where I was due to stay that night. But I didn't know it, where it was and for some reason I didn't have a GPS on me. So I showed the address to a stranger, to somebody who didn't speak English. I was kind of hoping I'd get a few hand signals out of them and they'd point me in the right direction and then maybe I'd need to ask someone else. That's not what they did. 
They walked for about 15 minutes with a stranger they couldn't speak to to make sure that I got to the place that I was going to. Now, we can look at what others do and think that's not appropriate in our culture. And in some ways, that's right. You know, we do need to be wise in how we are with those we don't know. Please, please don't think that I'm anyway asking you to be reckless with strangers. And I'm not suggesting that you should insist on walking with a stranger who really doesn't want you to. Yet think about it. London, in many ways, is a city of strangers. And that gives us an almost unlimited opportunity to be obedient to this passage. I'll give another example that is much closer to home. It's nearly 35 years since I moved to London and first came to this church. Um, I have a, a terrible memory for people. I'm sorry to say if I didn't see some of you for six months, I'd probably forget your names because that's how my mind is. But to this day, I remember those people from this church who made me welcome in my first week in London. I'm still in touch with them, but they're not close friends. But that is how important they were to me. And that's something everybody in this room can do to others that come to this church. Across the Old and the New Testament, there's a a culture of hospitality that is much, much more than welcoming someone with a meal, although food is often involved. It involves genuinely and sacrificially putting the interests of others above your own. Now, what a contrast to our individualism and our overinflated view of ourselves. Why is it that when we meet somebody lost in this big city, many of us, I suspect, would instinctively think that whatever we are planning to do for the next 15 minutes is more important than taking the time to ensure that person safely reaches their destination. Now maybe you think hospitality is something that is a nice to have in the Christian faith. Well, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 to 3, makes it clear that's not the case if you're in leadership in the church. Paul wrote this. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Paul is giving hospitality the same importance 
as being faithful to your wife or not being violent. That's not a nice to have. Okay, maybe you can think, you can get around this by, by not being a leader. Matthew 25 verses 34 to 36 suggests otherwise. It's, um, it's a part of Jesus' teaching that reminds us that there is a bit of a tension between grace and works. So grace is enormously important, but it's not something that frees us from all responsibility. Jesus said this, then the, chief, uh, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. I was a stranger and you invited me in. If, as these verses kind of suggest, the kingdom is reserved for those who welcome strangers, what does that mean for us? You've probably picked up, I've got quite a prejudiced view of my own culture when it comes to hospitality. Prejudice can make you blind. It can mean that you don't see things that you should be seeing. And arguably, I'm not seeing the good in my own culture, but also I'm not seeing the bad in others. I've certainly seen um, some amazing examples of hospitality in my culture. But let's just dig into hospitality that I've experienced elsewhere because it's not always what it seems. Remember how Hebrews chapter 13 starts, said this, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. To me, that is the heart of biblical hospitality. Show the love, show the protection, show the care for each other that you would show to a brother or a sister or that you had once shown to yourself. Unfortunately, the reality can be with hospitality that it is about appearance and status. It can be about honouring the rich and the powerful. It can be about giving favours for which you expect a reward or something in return. It can be given at somebody else's expense. It can even be given because the person believes that they are buying a piece of heaven through offering you hospitality. Sadly, the human heart can twist just about anything. So you can experience what feels like a wonderful outward expression of hospitality, but it may hide a set of expectations and beliefs that are far from the biblical teaching. It's my privilege to have friendships 
that have, have taken me past the outward expression. So I've understood some of the darker sides that can be there in other cultures, hospitality. But instead of going there now, let's look at another story of hospitality in the Bible. It's one that sits in remarkable contrast to the hospitality which is about appearance or status. It's found in John chapter 13, verses 3 to 4. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. As you likely know, Jesus went round each of his disciples and washed their feet. And that was the job of a servant and not of a master. Perhaps in ways it's difficult for us to understand because we're so familiar with this story. It lightly shocked the disciples. Now I notice there's a, a very small, very important word in the middle of that passage. It's the word so, so. It says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So. What it's saying is it was because Jesus knew that all things were under his power and because he knew he had come from God and that he was returning to God, it was because of those things that he washed their feet. When I read that, it just made me think I was wrong to say that these verses in Hebrews 13 have no connection to the verses at the end of chapter 12. I'd like to think I, I might have got there quicker if the um, author had helped me by putting the verse so between the two passages. If they'd done so, it, it would have read like this. It would have said, our God is a consuming fire, so keep on loving each other. You see, it's knowing who God is and especially what he is to us that should motivate us to love one another. That should motivate us to care for and entertain strangers, to remember those in prison, to remember those who are ill-treated. Now, you might, you might think that these verses in Hebrews 13 were written because the people that would first need to hear them, the people that they were written for, had a particular issue in this area. Perhaps that was what was bugging the writer. He, just, he or she just felt, I need to say this to this group of people because they're not getting this right. Well, Hebrews 10, 34, kind of suggests that's not the case says this, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the conversation of your 
property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. How many of us can honestly say that we suffered along with those in prison? I know I can't. Or can confidently say that if our property were confiscated, we would joyfully accept it? Not sure I would. And how many of us can say that they have grown up understanding hospitality towards strangers as these people did? As Tony once challenged me to link passages better, let me leave you with a challenge in the form of a question. If the writer of Hebrews could describe these people in this way, and yet still thought that they needed to be reminded to entertain strangers, to remember those in prison, and to remember those ill-treated, then what does that mean for us?